Chapter 16 The Ship Part 2 Seated on the transom was what seemed to me a most uncommon and surprising figure. It turned out to be Captain Bildad, who, along with Captain Peleg, was one of the largest owners of the vessel. The other shares, as is sometimes the case in these ports, being held by a crowd of old annuitants, widows, fatherless children, and chancery wards, each owning about the value of a timberhead, or a foot of plank, or a nail or two in the ship. People in Nantucket invest their money in whaling vessels, the same way that you do yours in approved state stocks, bringing in good interest. Now, Bildad, like Peleg, and indeed many other Nantucketers, was a Quaker, the island having been originally settled by that sect. And to this day, its inhabitants in general retain in an uncommon measure the peculiarities of the Quaker, only variously modified by things altogether alien and heterogeneous. For some of these same Quakers are the most sanguinary of all sailors and whale hunters. They are fighting Quakers. They are Quakers with a vengeance. So that there are instances among them of men who, named with scripture names, a singularly common fashion on the island, and in childhood naturally imbibing the stately dramatic thee and thou of the Quaker idiom, still from the audacious daring and boundless adventure of their subsequent lives, strangely blend with these outgrown peculiarities, a thousand bold dashes of character, not unworthy, a Scandinavian sea-king, or a poetical pagan Roman. And when these things unite in a man of greatly superior natural force, with a globular brain and a ponderous heart, who has also, by the stillness and seclusion of many long night watches in the remotest waters, and beneath constellations never seen here at the north, been led to think untraditionally and independently, receiving all nature's sweet or savage impressions fresh from her own virgin, voluntary, and confiding breast, and thereby chiefly but with some help from accidental advantages, to learn a bold and nervous lofty language. That man makes one in a whole nation's census, a mighty pageant creature formed for noble tragedies. Nor will it at all detract from him, dramatically regarded, if either by birth or other circumstances, he have what seems a half-willful overruling morbidness at the bottom of his nature. For all men, tragically great, are made so through a certain morbidness. Be sure of this, O young ambition, all mortal greatness is but disease. But, as yet, we have not to do with such an one, but with quite another. And still a man who, if indeed peculiar, it only results again from another phase of the Quaker, modified by individual circumstances." Like Captain Peleg, Captain Bildad was a well-to-do retired whaleman. But unlike Captain Peleg, who cared not a rush for what are called serious things, and indeed deemed those selfsame serious things the verest of all trifles, Captain Bildad had not only been originally educated according to the strictest sect of Nantucket Quakerism, but all his subsequent ocean life, and the sight of many unclad, lovely island creatures round the horn— all that had not moved this native-born Quaker 
one single jot, had not so much as altered one angle of his vest. Still, for all this immutableness, was there some lack of common consistency about worthy Captain Bildad? Though refusing, from conscientious scruples, to bear arms against land invaders, yet himself had invaded the Atlantic and Pacific, and though a sworn foe to human bloodshed, yet had he in his straight-bodied coat spilled tons upon tons of Levithian gore, how now, in the contemplative evening of his days, the pious Bildad reconciled these things in the reminiscence, I do not know. But it did not seem to concern him much, and very probably he had long since come to the sage and sensible conclusion that a man's religion is one thing, and this practical world quite another. This world pays dividends. Rising from a little cabin boy in short clothes of the drabest drab, to a harpooner in a broad, shad-bellied waistcoat, from that becoming boat-header, chief-mate and captain, and finally a ship-owner. Bildad, as I hinted before, had concluded his adventurous career by wholly retiring from active life at the goodly age of sixty, and dedicating his remaining days to the quiet receiving of his well-earned income. Now, Bildad, I am sorry to say, had the reputation of being an incorrigible old hunks, and in his seagoing days a bitter, hard taskmaster. They told me in Nantucket, though it certainly seems a curious story, that when he sailed the old Cape-gut whaleman, his crew, upon arriving home, were mostly all carried ashore to the hospital, sore exhausted and worn out. For a pious man, especially for a Quaker, he was certainly rather hard-hearted, to say the least. He never used to swear, though, at his men, they said, but somehow he got an inordinate quantity of cruel, unmitigated hard work out of them. When Bildad was a chief mate, to have his drab-colored eye intently looking at you made you feel completely nervous, till you could clutch something, a hammer or a marling spike, and go to work like mad at something or other, never mind what. Indolence and idleness perished before him. His own person was the exact embodiment of his utilitarian character. On his long, gaunt body he carried no spare flesh, no superfluous beard, his chin having a soft, economical nap to it, like the worn nap of his broad-brimmed hat. Such, then, was the person that I saw seated on the transom when I followed Captain Peleg down into the cabin. The space between the decks was small, and there, bolt upright, sat old Bildad, who always sat so, and never leaned, and this to save his coattails. His broad brim was placed beside him, his legs were stiffly crossed, his drab vesture was buttoned up to his chin and spectacles on nose, he seemed absorbed in reading from a ponderous volume. Bildad, cried Captain Peleg, at it again, Bildad, eh? He have been studying those scriptures now for the last thirty years, to my certain knowledge. How far ye got, Bildad? As if long habituated such profane talk from his old shipmate, Bildad, without noticing his present irreverence, quietly looked up and seeing me, glanced again inquiringly towards Peleg. 
He says he's our man, Bildad, said Peleg. He wants to ship. Doss thee, said Bildad in a hollow tone, and turning round to me. I dost, said I unconsciously. He was so intense a Quaker. What do you think of him, Bildad, said Peleg. He'll do, said Bildad, eyeing me, and then went on spelling away at his book in a mumbling tone quite audible. I thought him the queerest old Quaker I ever saw, especially as Peleg, his friend and old shipmate, seemed such a blusterer. But I said nothing, only looking round me sharply. Peleg now threw open a chest and, drawing forth the ship's articles, placed pen and ink before him and seated himself at a little table. I began to think it was high time to settle with myself at what terms I would be willing to engage for the voyage. I was already aware that in the whaling business they paid no wages. But all hands, including the captain, received certain shares of the profits called lays, and that these lays were proportioned to the degree of importance pertaining to the respective duties of the ship's company. I was also aware that being a green hand at whaling, my own lay would not be very large. But considering that I was used to the sea, could steer a ship, splice a rope, and all that, I made no doubt that from all I had heard I should be offered at least the 275th lay, that is, the 275th part of the clear-net proceeds of the voyage, whatever that might eventually amount to. And though the 275th lay was what they call a rather long lay, yet it was better than nothing, and if we had a lucky voyage, might pretty nearly pay for the clothing I would wear out on it, not to speak of my three years' beef and board, for which I would not have to pay one stiver. It might be thought that this was a poor way to accumulate a princely fortune, and so it was, a very poor way indeed, but I am one of those that never take on about princely fortunes, and am quite content if the world is ready to board and lodge me while I am putting up at this grim sign of the thundercloud. Upon the whole, I thought the 275th lay would be about the fair thing, but would not have been surprised had I been offered the 200th, considering I was of a broad-shouldered make. But one thing, nevertheless, that made me a little distrustful about receiving a generous share of the profits was this. Ashore, I had heard something of both Captain Peleg and his unaccountable old crony, Bildad. How, that they being the principal proprietors of the Pequod, therefore the other and more inconsiderable and scattered owners, left nearly the whole management of the ship's affairs to these two, and I did not know but what the stingy old Bildad might have a mighty deal to say about shipping hands, especially as I now found him on board the Pequod, quite at home there in the cabin, and reading his Bible, as if at his own fireside. Now, while Peleg was vainly trying to mend a pen with his jackknife, old Bildad, to my no small surprise, considering that he was such an interested party in these proceedings, Bildad never heeded us, but went on mumbling to himself out of his book, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth... Well, Captain Bildad, interrupted Peleg, what do you say? What lay shall we give this young man? Thou knowest best, was the reply. 
The 777th wouldn't be too much, would it? Where moth and rust you corrupt but lay. Lay indeed, thought I, and such a lay. The 777th. Well, old Bildad, you are determined that I, for one, shall not lay up many lays here below, where moth and rust do corrupt. It was an exceedingly long lay that, indeed, and though from the magnitude of the figure it might at first deceive a landsman, yet the slightest consideration will show that, though 777 is a pretty large number yet, when you come to make a tenth of it, you will then see... I say that the 777th part of a farthing is a good deal less than 777 gold blooms. And so I thought at the time. Why, blast your eyes, Bildad, cried Peleg. Thou dost not want to swindle this young man. He must have more than that. 777th, again said Bildad, without lifting his eyes, and then went on mumbling, for where your treasures, there will your heart be also. I am going to put him down for the three hundredth, said Peleg. Do ye hear that, Bildad? The three hundredth lay, I say. Bildad laid down his book, and turning solemnly towards him, said, Captain Peleg, thou hast a generous heart, but thou must consider the duty thou owest to the other owners of this ship, widows and orphans, many of them, and that if we too abundantly reward the labors of this young man, we may be taking the bread from those widows and those orphans. The 777th lay, Captain Peleg. Thou Bildad, roared Peleg, starting up and clattering about the cabin. Blasty, Captain Bildad, if I had followed thy advice in these matters, I would afore now had a conscience to lug about that would be heavy enough to founder the largest ship that ever sailed round Cape Horn. Captain Peleg, said Bildad steadily, thy conscience may be drawing ten inches of water, or ten fathoms, I can't tell. But as thou art still an impenitent man, Captain Peleg, I greatly fear lest thy conscience be but a leaky one, and will in the end sink three foundering down to the fiery pit, Captain Peleg. Fiery pit! "'Fiery pit! Ye insult me, man. Past all natural bearing, ye insult me. "'It's an ill-fired outrage to tell any human creature that he's bound to hell. "'Flukes and flames. "'Bildad, say that again to me and start my soul bolts. "'But I'll... I'll... yes, I'll swallow a live goat with all his hair and horns on. "'Out of the cabin, ye canting, drab-colored son of a wooden gun, a straight wake with ye.' As he thundered out this, he made a rush at Bildad, but with a marvelous oblique, sliding celerity, Bildad, for that time, eluded him. Alarmed at this terrible outburst between the two principal and responsible owners of the ship, and feeling half a mind to give up all idea of sailing in a vessel so questionably owned and temporarily commanded, I stepped aside from the door to give egress to Bildad, who, I made no doubt, was all eagerness to vanish from before the awakened wrath of Peleg. But to my astonishment, he sat down again on the transom very quietly, and seemed to have not the slightest intention of withdrawing. He seemed quite used to impenitent Peleg in his ways, 
As for Peleg, after letting off his rage as he had, there seemed no more left in him, and he too sat down like a lamb, though he twitched a little, as if still nervously agitated. Whew, he whistled at last. The squall's gone off to leeward, I think. Bildad, thou used to be good at sharpening a lance. Mend that pen, will ye? My jackknife here needs the grindstone. That's he. Thank you, Bildad. Now then, my young man, Ishmael's thy name, didn't ye say? Well then, down ye go here, Ishmael, for the three hundredth lay. Captain Peleg, said I, I have a friend with me who wants to ship too. Shall I bring him down tomorrow? To be sure, said Peleg, fetch him along and we'll look at him. What lay does he want? groaned Bildad, glancing up from the book in which he had again been burying himself. "'Oh, never thee mind about that, Bildad,' said Peleg. "'Has he ever whaled at any?' turning to me. "'Killed more whales than I can count, Captain Peleg. "'Well, bring him along, then.' "'And after signing the papers, off I went, "'nothing doubting but that I had done a good morning's work "'and that the Pequod was the identical ship that Yojo "'had provided to carry Queequeg and me round the Cape. "'But,' I had not proceeded far when I began to bethink me that the captain with whom I was to sail yet remained unseen by me. Though, indeed, in many cases a whale ship will be completely fitted out and receive all her crew on board ere the captain makes himself visible by arriving to take command. For sometimes these voyages are so prolonged and the shore intervals at home so exceedingly brief that if the captain have a family or any absorbing concernment of that sort. He does not trouble himself much about his ship in port, but leaves her to the owners till all is ready for sea. However, it is always as well to have a look at him before irrevocably committing yourself into his hands. Turning back, I accosted Captain Peleg, inquiring where Captain Ahab was to be found. "'And what dost thou want of Captain Ahab?' It's all right enough. Thou art shipped. Yes, but I should like to see him. But I don't think thou wilt be able to at present. I don't know exactly what's the matter with him, but he keeps close inside the house. A sort of sick, and yet he don't look so. In fact, he ain't sick, but no, he isn't well either. Anyhow, young man, he won't always see me, so I don't suppose he'll see thee. He's a queer man, Captain Ahab, so some think, but a good one. Oh, that'll like him well enough. No fear, no fear. He's a grand, ungodly, godlike man, Captain Ahab. Doesn't speak much, but when he does speak, then you may well listen. Marky, be forewarned. Ahab's above the common. Ahab's been in colleges, as well as among the cannibals. Been used to deeper wonders than the waves. "'fixed his fiery lance in mightier, stranger foes than whales. "'His lance, I, the keenest and the surest, that out of all our isle. "'Oh, he ain't Captain Bildad. "'No, and he ain't Captain Peleg. "'He's Ahab, boy, and Ahab of old, thou knowest, was a crowned king. "'And a very vile one, when that wicked king was slain, the dogs,' 
did they not lick his blood? Come hither to me, hither, hither, said Peleg, with a significance in his eye that almost startled me. Look ye, lad, never say that on board the Pequod, never say it anywhere. Captain Ahab did not name himself. "'Twas a foolish, ignorant whim of his crazy, widowed mother, "'who died when he was only a twelve-month-old. "'And yet the old squaw, Tisteg, at Gayhead, "'said that the name would somehow prove prophetic. "'And perhaps other fools like her may tell thee the same. "'I wish to warn thee. It's a lie. "'I know Captain Ahab well. "'I've sailed with him as mate years ago. "'I know what he is. A good man.' Not a pious good man like Bildad, but a swearing good man, something like me, only there's a good deal more of him. Aye, aye, I know that he was never very jolly, and I know that on the passage home he was a little out of his mind for a spell, but it was the sharp shooting pains in his bleeding stump that brought that about, as anyone might see. I know, too, that ever since he lost his leg last voyage by that accursed whale, He's been a kind of moody, desperate moody, and savage sometimes. But that will all pass off. And once for all, let me tell thee, and assure thee, young man, it's better to sail with a moody good captain than a laughing bad one. So good-bye to thee, and wrong not Captain Ahab, because he happens to have a wicked name. Besides, my boy, he has a wife, not three voyages, wedded, a sweet, resigned girl, Think of that. By that sweet girl, that old man has a child. Hold you then there can be any utter hopeless harm in Ahab? No, no, my lad, stricken, blasted if he be. Ahab has his humanities. As I walked away, I was full of thoughtfulness. What had been incidentally revealed to me of Captain Ahab filled me with a certain wild vagueness of painfulness concerning him. And somehow, at the time, I felt a sympathy and a sorrow for him. But, for I don't know what, unless it was the cruel loss of his leg. And yet, I also felt a strange awe of him. But that sort of awe which I cannot at all describe was not exactly awe. I do not know what it was. But I felt it, and it did not disincline me towards him though I felt impatience at what seemed like mystery in him, so imperfectly as he was known to me then. However, my thoughts were at length carried in other directions, so that for the present, dark Ahab slipped my mind. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.